Welcome to Pop Pantheon, the podcast where we completely overanalyze all of your favorite pop stars and then rank them in the official Pop Pantheon. This is your host, DJ Louis XIV, and please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Pop Pantheon wherever you get your podcasts. Those ratings and reviewings really help us get recognized by algorithms and get the podcast in front of more people, especially on Apple Podcasts. So thank you so, so much to everyone who's been leaving their ratings and reviewings. You hold a special place in my heart forever. Also, please follow us on social media at Pop Pantheon Pod on Instagram and Twitter and me at DJ L-O-U-I-E-X-I-V on both Instagram and Twitter. Check out Spotify playlists for this and every episode in our bios on Instagram and Twitter and in the show notes of this episode. And of course, please join our new Patreon, Pop Pantheon All Access. We launched this last week. A bunch of you have signed up. I am so touched by the amount of people that have joined this thing. It is so exciting for both Russ and I to be programming all this new content over there. A lot of it is obviously related to slash in the same vein ethos as this podcast. It's a in-depth over analysis of pop stars and pop music, but over there we're doing some slightly different variations on what we do over here on the main show. We're doing new music commentary. We're talking about new albums, new songs, everything that's going on in the news about contemporary pop stars and how it affects their Pantheon rankings. Perhaps we're also doing in-depth album lookbacks. This month we have an episode with with Rolling Stone's Britney Spanos about Taylor Swift's reputation and some other more personal content. So everybody that signs up at the icon tier on our Patreon, which is $5 a month, gets at least one bonus episode a month and hopefully some more. And access to our Discord channel, access to Patreon-exclusive virtual album release parties, access to the guest list at Gorgeous Gorgeous My Pop Party in LA. We're going to be doing exclusive merch drops. We're going to be doing feedback sessions. We want to give our patrons the ability to contribute to the content of the show and suggest artists they want to see episodes on, et cetera, et cetera. And if you just want to throw us a bone and you don't want to spend $5 a month, whatever, there's also a $2 niche legend tier, which provides Discord access, early merch drops, and also the ability to provide some feedback on the show. So that's all available at patreon.com slash poppantheonpod. I'll also link to it in the show notes of the episode and post about it on social. It's in our bios on social. So join us over there for Pop Pantheon All Access. Very excited about that whole deal. Also, we do have merch available in our website store at poppantheonpod.com. There's the iconic niche legend dad hat if you want to have a cool hat. I don't know. People like dad hats. So this episode is a bit of a new thing we're trying out. So we obviously have been tossing back and forth. We being Russ and I have been trying to figure out how to do episodes on some of the lower rung artists that we want to talk about here who maybe don't warrant a full, you know, 90 minute to two hour episode of the show, but are part of pop music history, part of the canon and need to be discussed and ranked, especially in tier five. Because as of right now, we only have one person in tier five that we've talked about on the show who is Normani. And 
there's plenty more of them. And we were like, how do we do episodes on these lower rung artists? And we decided that we want to try to do some kind of omnibus episodes where we link a bunch of these lesser prolific artists together and connect them together through some sort of theme and be able to talk about them all at once. So this is our first go around with that. And we're sort of titling this Forgotten Ladies of the 1980s, i.e. these are four artists, Debbie Gibson, Tiffany, Belinda Carlisle, and Taylor Dane, who had runs of hit records in the late 1980s, big moments that really faded very quickly around the turn of the 1990s. That's the thing that sort of links all of these artists together. They were humongous for a very brief period between, let's say, 1986 and 1990, give or take, within that period. And we then, at the end, of course, rank each of them individually in the Pantheon. And that's a really interesting discussion. Not all of them end up in the same tier, which is fun. So this episode was a blast. I really had so much fun doing this, trying out this new format. I think it's going to be an interesting way forward for us to deal with some of these lower rung pop Pantheon artists. Also, a lot of great music in here, a lot of not so great music in here, which are both somehow equally fun to break down. So without further ado, here is Pop Pantheon, Forgotten Ladies of the 80s, Belinda Carlisle, Debbie Gibson, Tiffany, and Taylor Dane. As discussed ad nauseum on this program, the 1980s were the big boom decade for modern pop stardom. But while a lot of credit for shaping the blueprint for pop, rightfully, is placed with a few big obvious names from that decade, there are plenty of other less remembered but perhaps no less intriguing figures who helped define the decade as perhaps pop's most formative. This episode is focused on some of the most erstwhile of that era, particularly a slew of women who, while perhaps aesthetically disparate in notable ways, all shared a few years of massive success and era-defining hits in the latter part of the 1980s before fizzling into their flop eras at the turn of the 90s. First up is former Go-Go's frontwoman Belinda Carlisle. Born in Hollywood in 1958, Carlisle grew up in abject poverty before parlaying a teenaged rebellious streak into an entree to the punk scene first becoming a drummer for the hardcore punk band The Germs, and later co-founding The Go-Go's. Known colloquially as the most successful all-female rock band of all time, The Go-Go's had great success in the early 1980s, integral in establishing the idea of new wave music, clocking a number one album with 1981's Beauty and the Beat, and scoring a slew of classic hits of the period, including We Got the Beat, Our Lips Are Sealed, and Vacation. The Go-Go's hung it up in 1985, and Belinda embarked on a solo career, releasing her debut album, Belinda, in 1986, which chewed closely to the new wave punk come 1960s girl group sound of the band which made her famous, and included the number three peaking Mad About You. But it was her 1987 sophomore album, Heaven on Earth, that really established Carlisle as a solo force. That record ditched the rough-and-tumble go-go shtick for a slick, radio-friendly sound, complete with an image overhaul for Carlisle, which reframed her as a glamour puss. Heaven on Earth spun off a series of hits, including the number seven peaking Circle in the Sand, the number two peaking Diane Warren Penn Stomper, I Get Weak, and of course, the number one smash, Heaven is a Place on Earth, one of the 1980s most enduring, life-affirming power pop anthems. Carlisle followed up that success with 1989's Runaway Horses, which featured some minor hits before she faded from the US charts in the 1990s, even while snagging a few hits across the pond. 
Along with the Go-Go's, Carlisle was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2021. Next up, we have Debbie Gibson, perhaps ground zero for the modern teen pop idol. Debbie was born on Long Island in 1970, where, at the ripe old age of 13, she won a radio station song contest for her original composition, I Come From America, which convinced her parents to build her a music studio in their garage. After spending a few years honing her myriad crafts as a triple threat singer, songwriter, and producer, Gibson recorded a demo that included early versions of many of her greatest hits, including her debut single, Only In My Dreams, and in 1986 caught the attention of Atlantic Records, who signed the 16-year-old Debbie to a development deal. Atlantic released Only In My Dreams, a freestyle-inspired dance pop song about first love in 87, and the single became a smash, peaking at number four and turning Debbie into the teen pop icon du jour. She followed that up with her debut album, Out of the Blue, and three more top five hits, Shake Your Love, the title track, and the chart-topping Foolish Beat. Out of the Blue went three times platinum, establishing Gibson's image as the girl in her signature black pork pie hats, an edgeless, uber-anodyne savant capable of tossing off perfectly constructed, inoffensive bubblegum pop songs that spoke directly to her core teeny bopper fan base. Debbie followed up Out of the Blue with 1989's Electric Youth, a record which mostly dabbled in the same formula as the first to ever so slightly diminishing returns. While the album spent five weeks at number one on the Billboard 200, it featured only one top 10 hit, the chart-topping ballad Lost in Your Eyes, sold about a third less than Blue, and was a harbinger for Gibson's chart slide. Her 1990 follow-up, Anything is Possible, peaked at number 40 on the Billboard 200, while 1993's Body, Mind, and Soul didn't crack the top 100. While she was never able to break out of the teen pop wave she helped usher in and return to the pop charts, Gibson later found success on Broadway, appearing in musicals like Les Mis and Grease. Foolish Beat, meanwhile, established Gibson as the youngest person ever to write, produce, and perform a number one hit on the Hot 100. Gibson's main counterpart in the teen pop movement of the late 80s was Tiffany Darwish, better known simply as Tiffany. Born in 1971, Tiffany was raised in the suburbs of LA and began singing country songs when she was four years old. At age 14, a demo she'd recorded caught the eye of renowned music producer and studio owner George Tobin, known for his hits with Smokey Robinson and Kim Carnes, who signed her to an all-consuming management contract in 1986 when Tiffany was just 15 years old. Tobin and a second place finish on Star Search helped Tiffany score a record deal with MCA Records, and she set to work recording her self-titled debut album, released in 1987. Produced by Tobin, the record, however, did not take off when the first single, Danny, failed to chart. And with the record languishing, Tobin sent Tiffany on a cross-country mall tour to help her build a fan base. During the tour, another song from the album, a dance pop remake of the 1967 Tommy James and the Shondell song, I Think We're Alone Now, began to catch fire organically. Tiffany hadn't even wanted to record the song, a pay-on to teen sex, but was convinced to do so by Tobin and her friends who found it catchy enough. 
I Think We're Alone Now featured a music video of a very young Tiffany on the mall tour and seeming, as any 15-year-old might, pretty overwhelmed by the whole endeavor. It eventually hit number one on the Hot 100 and remains to this day her biggest hit. She followed it up with two more smashes, the chart-topping ballad could have been, and her number seven peaking cover of the Beatles song, I Saw Her Standing There, retitled I Saw Him Standing There, all of which powered her album to four times platinum sales in the US and made Tiffany the youngest artist ever to top the Billboard 200 with her debut album. Tiffany released her sophomore record, Hold an Old Friend's Hand, in 1988. While it did feature the top 10 hit all this time, the record was a huge commercial come down from her debut, peaking at number 17 on the Billboard 200 and selling a quarter of her previous album. Tiffany ditched Tobin for her third album, 1990's New Inside, and pivoted towards a more uh, quote-unquote adult R&B sound. However, this record and the rest of her output never charted, and Tiffany was never quite able to shake the doe-eyed teen pop image of the I Think We're Alone Now video. She did, however, later find success on reality TV, appearing on shows like I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here, and in b side by movies like Mega Piranha. Lastly, we're talking erstwhile whaler Taylor Dane, who strung together no fewer than seven consecutive top 10 hits between 1987 and 1990 before fading into oblivion later in that decade. Born in Manhattan in 1962, Dane was raised on Long Island and began singing professionally in rock bands upon graduating from high school before striking out on her own and recording some Lucy dance singles in the mid-1980s. In pursuit of a record deal, Dane tenaciously contacted various publishing companies and asked if they would send her discard demos which weren't being used by their marquee artist. One of those songs, Tell It To My Heart, had been recorded earlier that year by Canadian Luisa Florio, and Dane instantly took to it. Her father lent her $6,000 to record it, and together with producer Rick Wake, Dane transformed the original into a pummeling freestyle dance pop nodding soul belter. The song unexpectedly took off at radio and led to both a record deal with Arista and, very quickly, her debut album, also titled Tell It To My Heart, which was released just a few months later. The album produced three more hits for Dane, the Tell It To My Heart nodding Prove Your Love, the goopy ballad I'll Always Love You, and the light rock of Don't Rush Me, and went double platinum. Dane followed that success with 1989's Can't Fight Fate, which similarly went double platinum and featured three more top tens, the number five peaking with Every Beat of My Heart, and two Diane Warren Penn tracks, the Tina Turner knockoff I'll Be Your Shelter, which peaked at number four, and the power pop ballad originally intended for Whitney Houston, Love Will Lead You Back, which became Dane's sole Hot 100 chart topper. Taylor took four years to follow up Can't Fight Fate, releasing her third album Soul Dancing in 1993. However, by that point, pop music had shifted away from the synthetic bombast of her biggest hits, and despite reaching the top 20 with her cover of Barry White's Can't Get Enough of Your Love, proved the beginning of the end for Taylor, who never again charted music. Taylor Dane has appeared on reality TV shows like The Masked Singer and RuPaul's Celebrity Drag Race. She was also the center of controversy when she performed at President Donald Trump's New Year's Eve party at Mar-a-Lago in 2021. on the show to discuss the careers and legacies of all of these forgotten ladies of the 1980s, Belinda Carlisle, Debbie Gibson, Tiffany, and Taylor Dane, is author of the number one's 20 chart-topping hits that reveal the history of pop music, senior editor of Stereo Gum, and writer of the number one's column, 
Tom Bryan. Okay, so I am here with Tom Bryan. He's the author of the forthcoming book, The Number One's 20 Chart-Topping Hits That Reveal the History of Pop Music. He's the senior editor at Stereo Gum, and he's also the writer of the very prolific daily column. Is it daily, Tom? It's three times a week. Three times a week. The Number One's column, where he's basically covering every single number one in the history of the Hot 100, basically. Absolutely. Got 800 of them so far, 800 some. Oh my God. That is literally the most daunting thing to even like try to wrap my head around. But anyway... It- it used to be daily. I couldn't do a daily anymore. It was too much. Yeah, I can imagine. But I also know that you're... Well, first of all, welcome to the show is what I wanted to Thank say. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you very much. But you're honestly like the internet music critic's most prolific writer. I feel like that's what you're known for. Like, obviously you have incredible takes and that's part of it. But like, you do the premature evaluations. Like, you're ready to like churn out work at a moment's notice. And it's always amazing. And I'm always like, how do you write this well so fast? Like, you need to teach a class. Thank you. That's really nice. It's, it's just years and years of doing it and not knowing a different way to do it. But yeah, thank you. That's so nice. It's true. And as I mentioned to you off mic, I've been reading you for over a decade and Status Ain't Hood is a classic of the genre and it's truly like kind of surreal for me to be sitting here with you. So... And we're talking about something that I find intriguing that we haven't covered on the show before. So I was just offlining with you before we started talking about how, as everybody knows who's listening to the show, we usually are here devoting 90 minutes to an individual pop star's career, discography, legacy, story, whatever. And as many listeners of the show will know, there's been complaints that we haven't yet covered some of the more bottom tier people because frankly it's been a little hard within the format of the show to figure out how to talk about artists that had one or two hits or had one big album era and that was kind of like the extent of their relevance as pop stars so I wanted to come up with a way to do omnibus episodes on some of these stars and find ways to group them together and I thought a good way for us to kick that off especially with someone with as vast a knowledge of pop history as you have would be to talk about artists from the 1980s Because I feel like the 1980s was such a formative decade for the way that we sort of conceptualize pop stardom in the modern era. Totally. And I think we constantly return to a handful of icons from that era. Madonna, Prince, Michael Jackson, George Michael, Janet Jackson. There's like the names that come across. They're the sort of titanic modern pop figures that loom over the landscape to this day that sort of formed all the tropes that a lot of the girlies and boys that have followed them continue to sort of map their careers onto. But there's also a handful of other artists that seemed huge in their moment that probably when these artists were having their peak of success seemed equally important and big and maybe also helped form some of these tropes. And we don't really think about them as much. So that's kind of the concept here is to maybe like dig into some of these forgotten stars, forgotten women in particular from the 1980s and sort of figure out whether they also had an impact on the shape of pop stardom and also to just remember what their careers were like and dig into some of what I think are some pretty great hits in the mix here too. Absolutely. What is it about the 1980s that was so incredibly formative to the contours of pop stardom? Why does it stand out in that way? Well, I was thinking about this. The book Major Labels by Khalifa Sana, really, really good book. He's got this line in there about how when people talk about pure pop music now, they basically mean things that sound like Borderline by Madonna.
And so that's like kind of the moment that pop music as it is currently understood as a genre that exists, that's like the beginning of it. Anything before that, you would probably still get people calling it rock and roll. Mm. Even if it's just disco or whatever, they'd probably still do that. This version of pop music, I think it comes out of a bunch of different things. It grows up out of the embers of disco, and it comes along at a time when MTV is making it really easy to, you know, image is always important to pop stardom, has been since the pre-rock and roll age. But this way of disseminating that image and having it on a loop in people's living rooms is a new thing. Sure. And there's a conscious effort on the part of a whole lot of black artists to not be put in the, like, bucket of black artists. So so you look at like Michael Jackson, Prince, Lionel Richie, a bunch of others, they're all peaking around the same time, Tina Turner even. Mm. And they're like, stop calling us this. We are also this. And those artists then went on to influence a whole lot of white artists. And so there's this polyglot moment that happens and it extends for a while. And it's not all good. And, you know, we're going to talk about some artists in this episode who I don't hold in super high regard. Yeah. <laughs> even though I, I got a, you know, whatever, sentimental attachment to some of them. Yeah, yeah. But the way all these different factors kind of come together at the same time is, I think, super interesting. And it definitely makes for like a rich, verdant time for pop music in general. I feel like Madonna is so instructive to this episode. Like we're obviously going to be talking about her a lot, even if we're not focusing this episode on her, because... Many of these women obviously stood in her shadow, even in their moment. And I love the idea of Borderline being this crystallizing moment for like what a quote unquote pure pop song is. What is that? Why is Borderline that? Like, what is it about it that separates it from the traditions of calling pop songs rock and roll or whatever? Like, what makes it different from that? I think Kay just meant that as a sort of a catch all thing. I don't think Borderline is like the specific song, but you could really make a case for Madonna, you, you know. So she basically comes from the New York club circuit, which is at this incredible time where it's like, all these different sounds are coming in, hip hop, freestyle, electro. She's crystallizing a lot of them, as well as obvious like post-disco dance music, and is sort of blurring it all up into this whole, she is a white artist who is working with black and Latino producers for the most part. And she's also taking from like post-punk synth pop and new romantic, which is also a big part of this. Mm -hmm. And all this stuff is coming together. And she also is able to do it in a way that broadcasts like cool and sexuality. Right. Which they're such difficult things to communicate to the world in like an, a cool, appealing way. And she was able to do it and she was able to make it all look really easy. So... When we're talking about some of the artists in this episode, they don't all sing like Madonna. Mm -mm. Some sing much better than Madonna, actually. <laughs> I mean, better is a relative term here. Some sing much more powerfully than Madonna. Let's put it that way. Certainly. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, this is like the most cliche, stupid thing to say, but it, there's so many ways in which she is the inflection point for this in my mind. Obviously, the 360 degree version of pop stardom that MTV creates feels like foundational and utterly like now is so baked into the cake like being a pop star is not just about or even maybe not mostly about being like a virtuosic musician so much as it is like world building for sure and i think that madonna is definitely someone that 
as we were just getting at a little bit with her voice, she really like turned the screw on that because it was like her pop stardom didn't hinge on her being the best at any of the things that she was doing. It hinged on her being this visionary who was able to create this entire sort of like world around herself, this image, this idea of like pop stardom and also to turn pop music into something that was like high art. I mean, wasn't that the kind of idea behind Madonna was that she was like a pop singer, but like she took it really fucking seriously that she was a pop singer. And Michael, I guess, did this too, and so did Prince, and so did so many of these people, but they were sort of saying, like, you know, pop music can have heft to it and have ideas behind it and isn't just, like, a frivolous thing that you play for two and a half minutes on the radio, which I'm not saying it ever actually was, but maybe that was the way that people conceptualized it. Even, I think, some of the people who made it conceptualized it that way. Exactly. But I feel like Madonna took herself really seriously in that way and thus kind of elevated pop music into something that meant more, had more heft, or could have the ability to actually be perceived as art in a certain way. So I feel like that's another reason that she feels like incredibly important to this whole thing. And as I mentioned earlier, it's like I was going back and reading so many contemporary reviews of some of the women we're going to talk to today. And like, even then, even in 86, 87, 88, like her name just is flying across these reviews. Like, yeah, You think about like Madonna's like lack of overpowering virtuosity too. It's almost like a boon. Right. Like an asset because people want to be Madonna. Like that was a whole phenomenon in the 80s. The Madonna bees or like Madonna wannabes. Right. Where her fans would dress up like her and stuff and would try to be her as much as they could. Whereas like Prince and Michael Jackson certainly had imitators, but you wouldn't go to the mall and see No, no one thought they were going to be Prince or Michael Jackson. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) They're kind of remnants of, uh, this is like a tangential conversation, but it's interesting because they do have a lineage that comes after them. You know, you think about like even like Usher or somewhat Justin Bieber, I guess, where it's like this sort of showmanship version of pop stardom that has just dissipated so much over time to the point where now I feel like relatability and quote unquote like authenticity and feeling like you could be the pop star is so much more the sort of currency than this old school version of like Rat Pack showmanship that Michael Jackson is more in the lineage of. Yeah, everybody needs to be like a little bit of a fuck up now. Like, in public. Yeah, exactly. Like, I feel like Ashley Simpson fucking up on SNL, like, is actually, like, a really formative moment that, like, now could be seen as an asset. For sure, yeah. She got pilloried, and now I think that the internet would rally around her and be like, no, she, like, you know, she had a stan army on Twitter in 2004. Right, right. (laughs) Pity the pop stars who lived in the era before the stan army. Yeah. They could have really extended all their careers. A hundred percent. All right, so we're here today to talk about four artists in particular, and you know, you can bring up other ones that come to mind. These were just the four that seemed to pop into my mind who like feel like not deserving of their own pop pantheon episodes, but felt like they fit the missive of what we're trying to do here. These are women who had pretty much one big moment Maybe it extended into a second album. Maybe it's four singles. Maybe it's five singles. For some of them, maybe it's really more like one or two singles where they had a huge moment and explosion and then just basically like it evaporated. Interestingly, they all seem to emerge also like, and this was not in my plan. This really just happened like when I started looking into this. It all happened kind of between 1986 and 1989, more or less. So we're now three or so years into Madonna's career. This is clearly like something that's happening in her wake. And they are Taylor Dane, Debbie Gibson, Belinda Carlisle, Tiffany. 
Now, before we even get into this, is there anything when I name those four people that you see them as sort of like having in common as performers, as entities, as legacies? Like, is there things about them that bind them together aside from being kind of flops? <laughs> like, so ultimately? I got to tell you, the answer is no. And I think it's so interesting that you picked those four. I, I mean, Debbie Gibson and Tiffany are like twinned forever. It's like, you know, Backstreet and NSYNC or whatever. Like they're like right. two things that happened at the same time. And unlike Backstreet and NSYNC, their backgrounds were super different. They come from different coasts. They didn't have that much to do with each other. But the fact that they both came along at the same time felt like at least a tiny bit of like a generational shift. Sure. And so that binds them forever. And now they seem to be embracing that. But um, Taylor Dane and Belinda Carlisle. So Debbie Gibson and Taylor Dane are both like creatures of the New York club system, mm -hmm. but different parts of it and are drawing on different ideas and sounds. But they're both show business kids. They both have a lot of Broadway in the way they do things. And I, maybe Tiffany does too. Belinda does not. She's like a completely different creature who seemed to kind of fall into centrist pop music in just a strange way. Right. And didn't last long in it. But now is, I mean, I would say she's definitely the most respected of all of them. But it's not for her solo stuff. Like she's in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame now as a go-go. Yeah. But not... She's never going to be in that conversation as a solo artist, even though she made bangers. Like, she and Debbie Gibson are, are easily my favorite of the ones we're talking about today. Mm, interesting. I think the thing that binds them together is what I said, which is that for some reason, they all had one hot moment in this time period where they seemed like a big fucking deal. Yeah, and I hadn't even thought of that. They really do all, like, fall along the same timeline. Yeah. And I, I just never would have even considered it. And interestingly, because I do think weirdly, like the decade turning onto the 1990s, like did signal even just like technologically a huge change in the sound of pop music and scope of pop music that they just didn't survive. It's like the silent films into talkies or something like that. Like they just like, For sure. like literally somehow it took them all out in a way that like Madonna turned the screw with Vogue and like Janet made Rhythm Nation and like was able to like move herself into another decade. Whereas somehow the 1980s like really took them out as big of a decade that as that was for pop music it also like seemed like it basically consumed some of these artists to the point where they couldn't get out of it and they all seem like victims of that in some way or their commercial success does and a lot of them seem to kind of lose it debbie gibson i'm thinking of in particular here by like kind of thrashing around for credibility yes right to like be taken seriously as an adult artist and in doing that you just kind of lost the juice it's interesting too in the context of what we were saying about madonna who just like increasingly did that to great effect so like if if she's a blueprint in some ways for like what some of them might be doing you could see why they think okay aspiring to higher and higher artistic values here is like how i'm going to make my career work but it clearly was something that again speaks to madonna's unique talent which is that they weren't able to copy that necessarily or to do it in the same way that she was able to do that and i should say too we're probably going to say some harsh things about career decisions and the way things went and and that they all did go into like their flop eras but you know <laughs> Every single one of these women has millions of monthly listeners on Spotify. They all contour. Totally. I saw Taylor and Tiffany performing Tell It To My Heart together one week ago on TikTok. Oh, that's weird. That's so, that's so <laughs> weird. That's cool. 
Good for them. What a strange pairing. It's so weird, but clearly they have a kinship together that's maybe just related to this era, like just sharing this moment. I don't know. It's fascinating. And I agree with you that like when I went back and listened to their music, they're quite distinct from each other in many ways. Here's my one question before we get into specifics, because you mentioned the Spotify streams. What do you think is the highest streamed song by any of these artists on Spotify? It's not fair because I just looked this up. Oh, you just looked it up. I was somewhat surprised because it's one is clearly almost double ahead of the second one. It's Heaven is a Place on Earth, right? It's Heaven is a Place on Earth. Is that surprising to you? No, because of that Black Mirror episode, San Junipero. Oh, that's what it is. I was shocked, not necessarily that it's number one, because I do think that song really does endure, but like that it was so far ahead of, I think the two right behind it are Tell It to My Heart and uh, Tiffany, uh, I think we're alone now, and they each have about like 190 million each or something like that. And Heaven is a Place on Earth has something almost like 400 million. Yeah. So, I I mean, I think San Junipero is part of that, but I think also I'm 43, right? So all this stuff is happening. Like I had my whole pop music awakening around like age eight or nine. So most of this stuff is like right before it. So when Heaven is a Place on Earth was out, I didn't have any conception of what music was. It was just sometimes I'd walk into a store and it would be playing. And I still remember that song. Right. I remember the video with the kids with the globes. Something about that song grabs a hold of you enough. It sticks in your brain. And I think it has a lot to do with production choices and just like how strong of a hook that is. but it seems to exist outside of Belinda Carlisle. It certainly exists outside of the Go-Go's. Every once in a while, somebody strikes gold and something just endures. Also, the conceit is just genius. Heaven is a place on earth. Like, what a perfect concept for a pop song. Like, what a great way to express feelings of love or whatever, which is like what so many pop songs are aspiring to or gesturing towards. Do you know where the idea for that song came from? No, tell me. It's a literal greeting card in a gas station. Actually, that adds up. Right. <laughs> well, let's take this opportunity to talk about Belinda first, I guess, because we're, we're here already. And also, she makes sense to talk about first because her career begins the earliest, it seems like, of any of these Way women. before, yeah. So can you talk to me a little bit, just like broad strokes about who Belinda Carlisle is? Uh, sure, yeah. So Belinda Carlisle comes from L.A. She was the original drummer of The Germs like a really important chaotic punk band. She called herself Dottie Danger and she was in the band for like maybe like two weeks and never played with them because she caught mono and had to move back in with her parents. Dastardly mono. Out here on the stage, a young lady who used to be a member of this group. She's going to explain to you why she's not in the group anymore. And here she is to introduce the germs, Belinda. The reason why I'm not in the group anymore because they're too dirty for me and they're sluts. But anyway, here's the group you've all been waiting for, the germ. Her whole arc is so wild. Yeah. So she's like an L.A. punk kid who's like around in the scene and doing stuff. And then she becomes one of the leaders of the Go-Go's, which starts out being called the Misfits. And then they change their name because there's already a Misfits. And they signed to IRS Records, which is sort of like the sub pop or the matador of the early 80s, you know, <laughs> like just like yes. a big giant indie label that makes hits and like they've got REM and stuff. But the Go-Go's become far and away the biggest thing that IRS ever had. 
they put out Beauty and the Beat in, I want to say, 81. And it's a huge, huge album. It's got hits on hits on hits. They never got to number one, but I think it was We Got the Beat got to number two. How do you describe that music? Like, what is the Go-Go's aesthetic, essentially? It was very retro, very kind of like garage rock slash like early 60s girl group through the context of like punk and new wave. You could easily group that in with like early Cindy Lauper, like that whole like totally. trash culture thrift shop aesthetic of the early eighties, where it was cool kid stuff. They were like tight with the specials or whatever. Right, right. But they're also making music that is warm and welcoming and nostalgic and very like easy to grasp. Super poppy actually. Yeah, super, super poppy. Like really Beauty and the Beat is like that's like an all time pop album. Like it's just a great, great record. But the Go-Go's didn't last. Right. They had drug problems. They had problems with each other. And they managed one more album that was like a real quickie, like a rush job. That's Vacation. Which the song Vacation rules. But the album didn't have more hits on it, and they broke up like almost immediately thereafter. A bunch of them went solo, and Jane Weedland has a top 10 hit of her own, at least one. But Belinda was the face of the band. She's super beautiful and a great front woman, and was like the obvious choice to go solo. But she went solo, not all at once, but her swing from like punk to yuppie is like very dramatic. <laughs> Yeah, it's true. To think about the woman on the cover of Heaven on Earth versus like the image of the Go-Go's is actually a pretty huge like reinvention of her aesthetic. Yeah, it is. And it's kind of a cool reinvention, but it's also like somewhere in there she married the son of James Mason, the movie star, who was also a guy who campaigned hard for Reagan and then worked in Reagan's State Department, which is like, Ugh. yeah, this is, but that's, that's <laughs> as yuppie as you can get. That's like er yuppie. And they're still together now? Well, she like turned into like a glamour puss kind oh, of. Oh, yeah, actually. yeah, yeah. So her and James Mason's kid are still together and they live in Thailand now. Oh, no way. But it kind of makes sense because I feel like, as you said, she's definitely the coolest of the people that we're going to talk about today. Like, I feel like she's definitely the one with the most genuine cool factor. And she's also the one who was most expected to be a hit. There's a lot of money in those Belinda Carlisle records, especially in Heaven is a Place on Earth. And they like yeah. set her up with Big Deal collaborators. She had like, I want to say it was Stevie Nicks' producer. Right. So she, she was released her first album, her self-titled album in 1986, and it's called Belinda, and it has one hit on it, which is this song Mad About You, which to me feels Go-Go's-esque, way more so than the stuff on her second record, her more notable hits. Yeah, it's like a little bit bigger and brighter and slower and you don't have that girl gang thing. Yeah, right. With all the different voices, but it's like that could have been a go-go song. 
For sure. I feel like one of her like strengths when I was listening to her sing this time is she has a really nice mix of seeming like tough girl, but also kind of vulnerable at the same time in her vocal. It's, she has an ability to convey like vulnerability, but also in the guise of this don't fuck with me punk rock background as well. Like it was an interesting combo. It's a super confident voice. Yeah. It's like deep and rich and conversational. Uh-huh. She always sounds like super confident. She seems to know exactly what she's doing which is not going to be the case for some of these other singers we talk about. <laughs> Mark Coleman of Rolling Stone referred to her as a liberated Leslie Gore. Interesting. I mean, that's <laughs> not very nice to actual Leslie Gore. That's really fucked I up, just, actually. I had to pull that out. Like, what, you Don't Own Me is not a liberated song? Listen, rock criticism in 1986 had quite a misogynistic streak going on. I mean... I don't know if you'll be surprised to hear. I hope it has gotten better, but I, I have seen some things. So she has the one hit from this first record, Belinda Mad About You, that we were just talking about, and that's kind of it. And she releases her definitive solo album, Heaven on Earth, in 1987. We've talked about the first single, which is Heaven is a Place on Earth, a little bit. Basically, a perfect pop song. Would you agree? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And it's like every part of it like slams really hard. Like it's got that great yeah. 80s wall of synth and guitar and synths sound like guitars and guitars sound like synths and everything just slams into you all at once. Chris Malanfi talked about the song one time on his podcast and made the great point that it puts the acapella chorus up front so it's the first thing you hear. Which is then a trick oh, that yeah. Bon Jovi uses and then it's a trick that all the 90s boy bands and teen pop people use. Like a Max Martin adaptation at some point. Exactly. And I don't think that that was really common practice before Heaven is a Place on Earth. So it might be one of the first examples of a song that does that in a super good, impactful way. It might even be the first. Yeah. I love what you were saying also about it's kind of hard to classify. Like it's obviously a pure pop song, but it has in the way that we were sort of talking about Madonna and Michael and all them kind of ushering in like a polyglot post-genre version of what pop music is. Is it a rock song? Is it a pop song? Like It's got like big guitars on it, but it also feels like incredibly synthetic. Like it's an interesting reflection of that sort of definition of pop, that 80s definition of what pop songs are. Absolutely. And everything on that perfectly calibrated, well-marketed. Diane Keaton directed the video, which is... I know, so weird. <laughs> I can't wrap my head around that. Picturing her on the set of the video, trying to show the little kids how to, like, wave the globes around. It doesn't make sense to me, but, cool. you know, whatever. Cool. Also written by Rick Knowles, who many listeners of this podcast will probably know as one of Lana Del Rey's primary collaborators. Oh, Wow. I forgot about that. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, to me, it just has so many trademarks of like what makes like that specific brand of girl power pop. To this day, it's like the formula works. I'm not afraid anymore. Sort of like this feeling of resilience in the face of whatever, of vulnerability and the key change and the sort of life affirming nature of the melody. It just feels like a perfect iteration of that kind of pop song that like you could release that today with slightly different production and it would be as big of a hit. Absolutely. Then she has another hit that follows that up which i have no recollection of this is a thing that's going to come back quite a bit in this conversation which is like these women have lots of 
big hits that scaled the charts in the wake of their more definitive memorable hits that I literally like have zero recollection of. The other thing that needs to be noted about the second single, it's called I Get Weak, yes. is that it is written by someone who's going to come up quite a bit in our conversation today that maybe also links these women together, which is Diane Warren. Diane Warren wrote songs, I think, for three of the four of these artists. And that sounds right. This song hit number two, and I literally had never heard it before in my life. Any thoughts on I Get Weak? Yeah, I think it's a banger. I'm surprised that you don't know it, honestly. I'm not trying to shame anyone or anything. I, you can shade me. It might be my favorite Diane Warren song. Really? I'm not a fan of the like Diane Warren 90s ballads at all all that stuff misses me there was an early moment in the 80s before she became yes. the ballad monster <laughs> she was just writing very very solid pop songs that could have been given to just about anybody and i get weak is i think it's great i think it's right up there I feel like in speaking about great Diane Warren songs, it also feels like a huge precursor to If I Could Turn Back Time, which came out two years later. Oh, sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's another good one. I forgot about that one. Come on, that's got to be the best Diane Warren song. Rhythm of the Night. Have you heard that lately? It's so good. Rhythm of the Night's great. Can't fight with you on that. But I mean, I, if I Could Turn Back Time, it's like pretty spine tingling every single time you hear it, I think. That's a banger. Yeah, I, I can't argue. <laughs> okay, so she gets that, number two. Then she has another hit from this record, another top 10 hit called Circle in the Sand. That was giving me a little bit like of a Stevie Nicks, more like witchy vibe. For sure. But it's also got a little bit of like a Shangri-La's girl group thing to it yeah. a little bit. Circle in the sand. And it's another cool song. I always really like that one. I also remember that one from when I was a kid. Pretty diverse group of singles, actually. Like, they really showcase a lot of different elements here, which, like, I think feels like a trend for these female pop stars is, like, you got to have the dance banger, then you've got to have, like, the power ballad, then you, like, there was a real diversity in these sounds. They weren't always so unified. Yeah, no, in the prompt that you sent me, the outline, you were asking about albums or do we consider these artists to be singles acts. Right. I never even thought about thinking of these women's albums as like unified groups. They're singles artists all the way down. 100%. There's good album tracks in there, but these are singles plus filler, 100%. So this album was somewhat successful. Successful, had hits. It went platinum. As you said, singles artists, maybe more than album artists. Yeah, it's the funny thing. The biggest album of any of the women we're talking about is the first Tiffany album, which went quadruple platinum. Right. But when artists are singles artists, they can have trouble selling albums. And uh, mm. you would think that Belinda would have moved more copies. And so she has one more minor hit on her 1989 album, Runaway Horses, called Leave the Light On. Did you listen to that one i did yes <laughs> it's so sick that one caught me off guard completely that song rocks yeah actually a few songs on this album are good and i actually went back and looked at her like set list of 
today, like to see like what she plays. And she plays a lot of songs off of this album, cool. which makes me feel like it's got to be like a fan favorite or something like that, that like, even though it doesn't have the hits. And if you look at her Spotify streams, maybe two of the top 10 songs in that are from this album, which was interesting because you go look at her Billboard chart history and none of these songs were like particularly huge. Right. But it does feel like she had a much longer run of minor hits in the UK and in Europe after the 80s. Yeah. Whereas here it was like no go for the rest of her career pretty much. Yeah, no, that was it. And then the Go-Go's reunited by like 94, 95. They got back together pretty quick. And then it wasn't always on all the time. Like it wasn't like a super active reunion, but I think she figured out pretty quickly that the Go-Go's way more than her solo stuff was going to turn out to be her legacy and her meal ticket. Right. What people wanted. Right, right. What do you make of the fact that she wasn't successful beyond in America beyond 89? Like, is there anything specific about her career or her choices or whatever that like, or just the turning of the tides in the nineties that like make that clear to you? No, it's weird. So she coincides with the Bangles, and the Bangles are the big, obvious post Go Go success. Mm-hmm. And the Bangles broke up right at their peak in '89 after Eternal Flame was the biggest song in the world. And after that, like, Susanna Hoff's solo career never popped off. Like, none of them popped off. And I don't get it. It seems to me that in the 90s, when alternative rock was bubbling up and people had big ideas about some version of what credibility should have and people should have credibility, that you would think that Susanna Hoffs and Belinda Carlisle would have had some, like, sustained goodwill. And it seems like they didn't. I don't get it, honestly. Yeah, it was strange to me, too. And again, it, like, comes back to the thing that unifies all of these women together is that somehow they all got dumped. Like, it's interesting, like, right at the same moment. I just, I'm, I'd be so curious to try to isolate what happened in, in the 89 to 90 flip that like made it so hard for them to move forward. But I haven't quite figured that out for myself. Maybe by the end of this conversation, we will. For Belinda, it could be the hard turn into yuppieism. Mm, I also think the way music sounded, I mean, thinking again about Madonna, it's like, think about Vogue and like how different that sounds in just in terms of production and the influence of that house music vibe. I just think of that song as so important for her or that the way that Rhythm Nation sounds like so futuristic for that moment. Well, Vogue and Rhythm Nation are both built on sounds that were bubbling underground or on the fringes. So like Vogue is full house music and making connections with the whole Vogue ball subculture. Rhythm Nation is almost Janet's version of a Public Enemy album. Exactly. Like the way that she was able to incorporate hip hop into that. Yeah. And I don't know what Belinda Carlisle's version of that would be. Like if she made like an L7 record or something, (laughs) but like it didn't happen. All right. Let's talk about Debbie Gibson next, because I feel like this is, she's a pretty different type of artist, but I was very impressed and people might not recognize this about her because I think she is derided as like teen pop fluff in memory to a lot of people. This girl wrote and produced almost all of her own work. She was sort of like a Taylor Swiftian figure for her moment. Yeah, she was. Yeah, very much a prodigy in a lot of ways. Yes. Started out on her own and got help from producers, but like 
she did not have the machine rumbling behind her, at least in the beginning, the way someone like Belinda Carlisle did, and had this great idea about how to use her own voice and like how her voice should sound, especially early on, like what types of records she should be making. Yeah. To me, her debut single, Only In My Dreams, that's the best song that we're going to talk about today. Oh, wow. That, to me, is an absolute diamond-plated, beautiful piece of pop music. I don't think songs get better than that one. you know a little bit about her story? Sure, yeah. Uh, she's from Long Island. She was a, a kid who was into Broadway and into pop music, and she started writing songs when she was like 12 or something. Right. And found herself this entertainment lawyer as a manager, and he said that he would manage her, but he would only do it if she agreed not to sign a deal until she was 16. So Debbie spent like three or four years honing her songwriting craft and like figuring out how to produce before this guy started shopping her stuff around to labels. And so when he did, she was a complete fully formed phenom. But then when he started shopping her stuff around, she only got a singles deal at first. And so Only In My Dreams was that single and it takes off. So she gets to do an album, but has to knock out the album really quick. How would you describe Only In My Dreams as a song? Okay, so Only In My Dreams, it's kind of a Latin freestyle song. It's got a lot of bubbly synth stuff going on. I'm pretty sure it uses the Apache breakbeat, <laughs> or else it just uses percussion stuff that sounds enough like the Apache breakbeat. So it's got this like great bubbly energetic beat and then she's sighing over it. Like she sounds like a child, which she was. Right. And it's all about love only in my dreams, as real as it may seem, but it was only in my dreams. It's like this kid who wants something so bad and is just grasping for it and it's ephemeral. But she sounds happy. Like she's like, this is going to happen and I can't wait for it. But it's not here yet, and that's frustrating, but it's a very, very positive song with big feelings behind it. She sings it so perfectly. Her voice just sounds awesome on it. Like, this is just a perfect bubblegum song. It's as good as that can get. I feel like you're also underscoring two things about setting up why she had a difficult time kind of getting out of this, which is that she leans so heavily into that teen girl perspective right. to great benefit in this era. But it felt like to me, as we were sort of alluding to maybe amongst all of them, there was sort of the impetus to grow up as she sort of moved out of that image. And people had, I think, a difficult time perceiving her as anything other other than the girl on this song. Yeah, her whole sound is extremely fluffy and innocent, and she leans into that hard. And then when she made grown-up music, she did not do the, like, ex-teen star thing of trying to be sexy. Right. She went instead into, like, adult contemporary. She tried to be a grown-up without losing that, like, essential innocence. I don't know her. I've never met her. But as far as I can tell, that's, like, a part of her personality, that she's a shiny, positive, happy person. I can't think of any 
examples of Debbie Gibson being publicly raunchy ever. No. Actually, I think she's devoted a lot of her adult life to nurturing other female songwriters. Like she hosts workshops and like people come from all over the country and she is really into like nurturing talents of young female songwriters. That's like what her adult life has been about. That's awesome. And and also she ended up playing Belle on Broadway in Beauty and the Beast. And there was always an essential like Disney princess thing that she had going on. Mm. Actually, both her and Tiffany, when I was going back through this, it's like in a lot of ways they set the template for the modern teen pop star. Like I can see so much of the way that Selena Gomez and Demi Lovato are marketed in their early eras of Disney, like through her. I don't know. There's something about sort of really leaning into the teeniness of the whole thing that felt like it got refined and copied by the Disney machine in the 90s and 2000s. When Britney Spears signed to Jive, Barry Weiss, like one of the guys at Jive was like, okay, if the Backstreet Boys are our new kids, then Britney is our Debbie Gibson. Right, except the difference being that Britney was so sex forward, even in her youngest era, and this was so, as you said, completely chaste. Yeah, right. Britney became the Debbie Gibson of a corroded, trashy era. (laughs) (laughs) The innocence is so much the appeal, but you can see how much like she was digging herself into a hole. So this song was a smash and then she got a record deal and this album was like a juggernaut essentially, right? I mean, this album tossed up like another three huge songs. Hits on Shake Your Love, Out of the Blue, and Foolish Beat. And Foolish Beat, she's like, becomes the youngest kid ever to write, produce, and record a number one hit. And that record is then broken by Soldier Boy. I love that. That's actually I, I, I really do love that, yeah. <laughs> Two great songs. So when she wrote Foolish Beat, Debbie Gibson wrote a letter to George Michael asking him to produce it. She just never heard back, and that's why she did it herself. Oh, and is that why the big 80s sax is there as like a careless whisper? I'm like- sure. That song is 100% a careless whisper bite. But it's like a kind of a charming careless whisper bite. It's true. Like, she doesn't have Taylor Swift's ability to convey something deeply singular and personal in her songwriting, but she does have that strange savant teen perfect pop song maker of Taylor Swift. I hadn't thought about that, but Out of the Blue and self-titled Taylor Swift record that's a lot of commonalities there, just in terms of presentation of image. And it seems like it wasn't just an image. Like, it was a genuine thing. Like, these are just nice girls who want to be in love singing about nice girls who want to be in love. Honestly, I have a hard time feeling that Although she stopped making hits, that Debbie Gibson's career fully faltered because I don't think she ever stopped presenting herself as herself. Right. I don't think she was chasing hits too hard. Maybe I'm idealizing that. I don't know. I, I don't know. When you listen to some of those early 90s records and her trying to adapt her sound to those aesthetics and it made me think she was trying to figure out how to be more successful again, but maybe that's me, my projection. I mean, they're whack. The early 90s records are dog shit, but uh, they feel genuine to me. Yeah, no, she definitely like had 
had integrity, it felt like. She, she had integrity. And I think the Taylor Swift thing is also interesting because Taylor Swift also presented as very chaste through most of her career and like has never really like been someone that puts sex in the forefront and has somehow managed to signal adultness without having to use that necessarily for the most part, like style notwithstanding. Yeah, there's been a couple moments, but yeah, it's true. It's interesting. I never really thought about those two together, but it totally makes sense. Yeah, and then Shake Your Love to me is just like very Madonna. I mean, talking about Madonna, it sounds Very like Madonna, it. very Latin freestyle yes. too. And also Paula Abdul choreographed that music video. Oh, okay. In all those early videos, she wears the black gloves and stuff. Like, she's definitely going for a stylistic, watered-down Madonna thing. Yeah, absolutely. And then Out of the Blue is also, like, teen fairy tale, yearning puppy love. Her videos are very funny. They are. The innocence of the whole thing. No edge. Completely edgeless. Yeah. And they're all operatic with the drama. There's a guy trying to bring her flowers, but then he leaves them in the trash outside the club where she's performing. He can't bring himself to give it to her. And just all the scenes of her falling in love with someone are really hysterical. They're really like Saved by the Bell montages. Yeah. (laughs) You know... Obviously, Belinda Carlisle and Debbie Gibson, as you mentioned, are pretty different artists. Like, are their fans really different? Like, who are their stands, like, in this peak era? Can we make some generalizations about, like, who are obsessed with each of these artists? For Debbie Gibson, it is children. She makes music for kids. Like, she's not taken seriously by adults at all. Like, she won some big songwriting award when Electric Youth came out. Like, an ASCAP award or something that she shared with Bruce Springsteen that year. Which is... (laughs) Just funny to think about. So crazy. But so I think there was respect for the fact that she was writing her own songs and people knew that it wasn't like a thing that was kept under wraps. Right. It was almost like a, oh, look at this little kid and she writes her own songs. I don't think it ever granted her the aegis of a serious artist. Right. Which is sort of sad in retrospect. I mean, I think that's part of the reason just not to keep bringing her up, but I think Taylor Swift and her various people that have marketed her over her career have done a super effective job of putting that front and center. And that has been such an important piece in her longevity as an artist is that people view her as respectable by raucous standards because she is a songwriter herself. And that has been such an important part of her thing. And that took time. People had to be worn down on yeah. that. That was not immediate. No, but they made sure that you knew that. Like that was always really important in a way that I was surprised to know all of this about her. You know what I mean? And I'm, you know, we're now 35 years removed Don't from all of this. Don't make me do the math. I was so shocked to see that I think of Debbie Gibson as well-made teen pop fluff and that she was a cipher. Right, but she was making it well herself. She was sitting in, in a converted studio her parents made for her in the garage like making this stuff it's really impressive it's really cool she's got like a fun backstory i agree and also she seems like kind of like a lovely person yeah when i wrote about foolish beat for the number ones she like wrote the nicest tweet about it like i feel so fucking tacky to brag about a twitter mention on a podcast but that really made my day her being like oh this is so nice thank you i was like man i made debbie gibson a little bit happier that's great I love that. And I wasn't even raving about that song. She has two number one hits and they're both ballads. And I like her up-tempo jams so much better. And that's the case with so many club singers from the 80s. Their ballads turned out to be their biggest chart hits. Totally. And if you look on Spotify or whatever, 
But I think it might actually be Foolish Beat is the biggest Debbie Gibson song. But I feel like her dance jams are better remembered for the most part than the big fluffy ballads. This links her to Taylor too, because Taylor's second biggest song is also like a huge gloppy Diane Warren ballad. Yeah. I, I, I thought you were talking about Taylor Swift for a second. But yes, Taylor no, Dane. No, 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 yeah. no, 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 no. The original Taylor, Taylor Dane. <laughs> so... Debbie has one more pretty big album, not as big as the first one. It's called Electric Youth. And its two most notable songs are this ballad, Lost in Your Eyes, that's like kind of Broadway. Like I kept thinking to myself, she should have written a musical at some point. Like she could have been Sarah Bareilles, you know? (laughs) I mean, she hasn't been writing the songs, I don't think but that has been a lot of her career has been on broadway on broadway but i'm saying she could be duncan chic or sarah Bareilles or whatever and like written a musical sure yeah i mean she could still or cindy lopper for that matter speaking of 80s female pop stars 100 percent, and that might be a good length for her. i don't think that what was that song lost in your eyes yeah lost in your yeah i don't think that's a great song no She leaned way too hard, especially on the later records, into the balladry. And her whole ballad sensibility is so soft and puffy and utterly edgeless, it loses me. I agree. And I don't care that much either for the title track, which was also the other hit off of this album. See, I think that looks good. Electric Youth might be one of the first 30 albums I ever bought. Oh, wow. Yeah. I was nine, and I liked that song. And that song has a very fun video. The choreography in that video is good stuff. I don't think either of these songs, though, stack up to the best songs on the first record. No, definitely not. To me, that was my interpretation of it. You know, there's something almost, this might be a weird thing to say, but there's something, something almost brill building about her. <laughs> yeah, yeah. well, it's like Carol King or something, right? It's what I mean, yeah. It's like, she's a good, solid song maker. It never feels hyper-personal. There's a broadness to them. Yeah. And if you look at someone like Kathy Dennis was making hits around the same time and really transitioned out of that into just being a songwriter. Yes. And making hits on hits and that hasn't happened for debbie gibson but i think it could still yeah it's true you can really like work if you're good at writing i mean look at sia like there's no age limit on cracking that code if you can write a hit you can do it at any age kind of absolutely so as we mentioned debbie kept releasing music through the 90s and early 2000s actually weirdly she released an album in 2020 called the body remembers that got pretty solid reviews i was pretty surprised i went and listened to a couple songs from it it wasn't like my favorite thing i've ever heard but she's still out here doing it she's touring Yeah, she does Vegas residencies and stuff. Yep. She did a co-headlining tour with Tiffany a few years ago. Oh my God. See, these girls are all interconnected. Like they're all, they know each other. They're hanging out. They have a group chat somewhere, I think. I'm sure they were also both in a movie called Mega Python versus Gatoroid together. I did not, that didn't come across my radar. I I think I I looked up a couple scenes on YouTube. That was as far as I got with it. What the hell are you doing in my VIP tent? I want you out of here now! Oh, it's your VIP tent, is it? In your Everglades. Hmm? You treat this as if it were your own private little domain, like you own it or something. But it's not really your property now, is it? Oh, it absolutely is. And to prove it to you, I'm gonna have you thrown out by my deputy! Oh, I'm not going anywhere. (laughs) No. Not until everybody sees this. What is that? That 
is footage of you planting steroids in those chickens and feeding them to those gators. They understand that they are fundamentally tied to each other in the popular imagination, and they have played into that. Yes. So I think a good transition from Debbie is to go into her teen pop counterpart, Tiffany, who, Let's do it. in my look back at it, was the most sad <laughs> feeling to me because there was something about it. Unlike Debbie, who was not actually kind of a manufactured cipher, there was something about Tiffany that felt totally like she was being taken advantage of. Very much so. So what's Tiffany's story? Okay, so she's from California. She's a total stage kid, was on Star Search when she was a kid. Debbie Gibson had tried to get on Star Search and got rejected. Mm. So Tiffany is one of these classic little kid, big voice. Yeah. It's got like this deep throaty thing and tries to become a country singer for a little while and nothing quite pans out. But then she's recording a demo in a studio and a producer hears her and is like, oh, this is interesting. George Tobin, who had famously written and produced songs with Smokey Robinson, I think, and like Kim Carr. Yeah, and you can hear in her music that maybe he conceptualized her whole thing as like a little baby version of Kim Carnes. Right. Her hands are never cold. She's got Betty Davis eyes. She'll turn her music on you. Or Pat Benatar or Patty Smythe. Like a little rocker kid. So she signs this kind of, I think, ultimately pretty shitty deal with this guy, George, right? And he sort of like takes control of her whole shit. Yeah. She pretty much sings whatever he puts in front of her. And it doesn't go anywhere at first. But then she records a cover of I Think We're Alone Now, which was a hit in the 60s for Tommy James and the Shondells. And sings it because George Tobin wants her to, doesn't like get the song, isn't into it. But he puts together like a little blippy electro type beat for it. Mm -hmm. And she's like, well, my friends like this beat, so I guess I'll sing this. <laughs> And then it wasn't like even earmarked to be a single, but some radio programmer somewhere heard it and started lobbying Tiffany's label to be like, no, this needs to be the single. Like, you got to put this out. Wasn't it also a result of the sort of like foundational mall tour that they sent her on? I mean, Tiffany kind of created the modern conception of like using a mall tour to promote an up and coming teen pop star, which Britney did and Christina did and Backstreet did in her wake. But like, that was how she like built a fan base really. Like, and that was where I think a lot of people gravitated towards I Think We're Alone Now also. Yeah. And it was out of necessity because she couldn't get into clubs. She was 14. They wouldn't let her into clubs to sing in there. So the video for I Think We're Alone Now is filmed like on the mall tour essentially and like this is a child even more so than Debbie in a weird way who like was kind of self-possessed. Someone threw this child in here and like she doesn't even like quite know what she's doing here. Right. But it's also like Debbie Gibson was in New York which for one thing they let her sing in clubs. Right. Like they didn't care. So if Tiffany was from New York, they probably wouldn't have put her on the mall tour. Maybe people were more stringent about checking IDs in California. Yeah. But also, I think it was one of these necessity happenstance inventions. The fact that she was on that mall tour and that it's filmed in the I Think We're Alone Now video, which probably cost like $16 yeah, to literally. make. But like... 
it, that makes her so much more accessible. It's like the equivalent of like if it was filmed on an iPhone in this day and age. Right, exactly, exactly. It's like the Glorilla FNF video of <laughs> yeah. 1987 or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Tiffany's hanging out the window with her ratchet-ass friends. <laughs> <laughs> she looks like a fucking deer in headlights in that she music does. video. She does. And I think that was the appeal to a lot of people. Right. And it was also when I think we're alone now hit number one. She's the first artist who was born in the 70s to get to number one. Oh, interesting. And so I think we're alone now is a song that was older than her. And also that song and another cover of a Tommy James and the Shondells song went back to back at number one in like 1987. What? And the other one was Billy Idol doing Moni Moni. Oh my God, that is fucking crazy. That is the weirdest thing ever. Insane random shit tommy james and the shondells somehow became bigger in 1987 or 88 than they were in the late 60s it doesn't make any sense at all it's fucking wild but it's interesting that all of these acts literally almost every single one we've talked about so far is referencing this era there's this fascination with 50s 60s era pop music oh well okay so i have ideas about that for one thing in that era there were so many updated covers of oldies hits that were popular which is a thing that i see happening again and again writing the number ones like it happened in the mid 70s when the carpenters were covering please mr postman and stuff right and so it happened here club nouveau singing lean on me by bill withers is a number one hit uh-huh. kim wilde singing you keep me hanging on by the supremes is a number one hit kim wilde also potentially belongs in, in this, this conversation, conversation even though she really only had two hits So why? Why is this such a fertile ground at this moment? Aging baby boomers <laughs> who have kids. And they want to hear something on the car radio that nobody's going to argue about. My parents were baby boomers who were not big pop music people. This was a moment of, I would say, deep anxiety among those baby boomers regarding pop music. This is like PMRC era. This is like Tipper Gore being like, oh no, my kids are listening to Warrant or whatever. Right. And so it's like, all right, well, we've got a little kid who's going to sing a cover of a 60s song. Nobody's mad. But it's also like a weirdly salacious song. When you see her, I mean, apparently the original was a response to like a prohibition of sex law somewhere. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. And it actually, like when you listen to the lyrics, you know, it doesn't have like the purr of hit me baby one more time or anything like that. But the content of the song is pretty sexually forward that when you look at this 15-year-old girl in the music video, you're a little bit like, should you be singing about this? I'm not sure. Yeah, and she didn't know. She had no idea that that's what that was about which is probably part of the charm in a weird way Mm -hmm. i really do like her version of the song me too it's great the beat is almost like new order or something like that yes which is i think how they got her to agree to do it right and it actually works and then she does the same thing later on when she does i saw him standing there over this fake prince beat and it's so whack it is preposterous it's so bad And it's like, 
oh, this worked. So we're going to do the most obvious possible thing we could do with this. And you can so obviously see the hand of this Tobin fella who was like clearly like enamored with this era and was like, we're just going to keep updating songs from this era. Such garbage. It's so bad. The other big hit from this record, though, which is also number one, is this ballad could have been. Yes. Do you have anything you'd like to say about could have been? I, you know, it's not a great song. I was looking back at what I wrote on it because I didn't remember any of it, but it was some struggling songwriter who mostly sang on demos played it at a steakhouse. <laughs> I think she was playing at a steakhouse and somebody who worked for George Tobin heard it and was like, oh, this is a good song to take it to George Tobin. Wow. And, and he liked it. Weird. And it was the last song on the album. It wasn't supposed to be a single. It was actually Tiffany's version that she recorded was a demo and George Tobin was trying to send it to Natalie Cole and stuff. <laughs> and I could see that. When nobody bit on it, it just became the Tiffany song instead. Wow. And then Tiffany has the really the shortest run of all of these people because she releases her follow-up, Hold an Old Friend's Hand in 1988, which has a top 10 hit called All This Time, but that's kind of the basically the end of her run, essentially. Like that album does significantly less well. Yeah. When she tours, also worth noting, her opening act is New Kids on the Block. And then they reversed the next year. Yep. And she opened for them. <laughs> Which kind of gives you, I guess, like a pretty solid encapsulation. That, that, that's the Tiffany trajectory for you right there. Yeah. And that was kind of the end of it for her, basically. Like she was never able to recapture any sort of relevance, even though she released albums in 90, 93, 2000, 2005, 2007. She took a big break, too. She had kids when she was like 20. Oh, interesting. And, uh, and so she was out of it for a while. And she is the flip side of Debbie Gibson, right. where they come along at the same time and they represent the same generational demographic but Debbie Gibson is entirely a self-starter and Tiffany is not that she is the opposite of that I think we're alone now indoors I think more than any of Debbie's songs oh for sure yeah it's way higher up on the Spotify streams than any Debbie Gibson song yeah and it also has a big recent soundtrack sync moment because it's in the first episode of Umbrella Academy <laughs> there's like a big dance sequence set to it I just watched that whole show with my daughter oh, my and God, so amazing. it's fresh in my head my kid knows so many songs now specifically because of Umbrella Academy <laughs> okay maybe I'll have to check it out just for the song syncs yeah I, a Kiss song will come on in the car and she'll start singing along and I'll be like what are you doing and she's like oh I was on Umbrella Academy TikTok <laughs> that's iconic you know it's really interesting to like the footprint that these songs have it so we did an episode on Cindy Lauper earlier this year with Rob Harvilla and it was interesting because really Cindy doesn't have so much bigger of a footprint than these women do ultimately I mean she has the one album that is just so humongous that has like yeah. six hits on it and is just pretty much a flawless pop record. She's got the follow-up album that has another couple, obviously, true colors, and, you know, you know, it's got some really memorable songs on it. And then she's got I Drove All Night and a few more hits. But, like, she's got a bigger footprint than these women do. But we ended up putting her in Tier 3 of the Pantheon when she really belongs in Tier 4 because there's something about this 80s period that, like, makes these songs endure in a way that I feel like similarly huge hits later on, like, don't necessarily feel like they have the same footprint. Like somehow Tiffany really is more or less a one hit wonder. Like I get that she has other hits, 
but like for all intents and purposes, she's a one hit wonder, but people still remember Tiffany in this way that like you don't remember, I don't know, Omi or something like that, you know? <laughs> Man, poor Omi. That song was so good. <laughs> but I'm just saying, you know what I'm saying? Like, There's something about this period where like it's so baked into our memories of like what pop music is, what pop stardom is, that their legacy, like Tiffany's legacy looms way larger than it should. Yeah, it's true. It's true. Well, Cindy Lauper also has this like huge personality. Oh, of course. No, I'm not, I'm not saying Cindy belongs with these girls. I'm just saying that we couldn't help but put her in this higher tier just because like there's something about the era that she defined that feels bigger than the sum of its parts. Yeah, for sure. And so, yeah, so she seems like a bigger deal than Kesha or whatever. You took the word out of my mouth because we had the reverse struggle with Kesha where I was like yeah because like Kesha has probably the same amount of hits as Cindy Lauper right and actually they share a lot in common this sort of trashy pop aesthetic and like yeah. you know there's a lot of things that they draw on with each other but just because Cindy defined that early MTV era it just feels like her legacy is just so much bigger than even just the fact that she probably doesn't have more hits than Kesha or Nelly Furtado or whomever you know what I mean yeah and as we said back at the top this is basically the birth of pure pop music as a genre right. and so she's in there like she's little richard or something you know like it's it's it's, it's, <laughs> totally. it's she's, little she's like there at the beginning so she's always going to be there so here's our final topic for the day who i actually feel like is good for us to end on because i feel like of these artists she feels like the most like she could have potentially made the leap into the 1990s more so because uh, i'm glad she did ah! okay so we're here to talk about taylor dane tell me a little bit about taylor dane okay so this is i got a like, I don't like Taylor Dane. So, all right. Taylor Dane is from New York or from, I guess, Long Island. Yes. And is a, another Broadway kid. Goes to the Broadway shows on the trips into town with her parents. And is like, her entire career gave off, like, the most severe bridge and tunnel energy yeah. that I have ever encountered. That's so true. Oh, God. She is Long Island through and through. A hundred percent. She, like... <laughs> So she's also a Jew. I just want to note for the Jews out there, like myself. Oh, word. Okay. Just feel like that's important to put out there. We have very few Jewish pop stars, so I just want to make sure that we note Taylor Dane is one of our few. Uh, salute. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> she's a type, right? She is a big hair, big voice lady, mm -hmm. and she made some dance singles with a dance producer in New York in the eighties. with some rock bands in college and stuff uh, doesn't have necessarily much of a sonic identity beyond big hair big voice yeah well she's the most virtuosic singer of this group by about a mile right yeah but it's the bad kind of virtuosity <laughs> i think it's the demi lovato kind is what you're saying it's like christina aguilera when she's like on a hundred yeah. and when she's like not willing to reel herself back in the tiniest bit like scenery tearing kind of thing yeah and i think there's a lot of christina in taylor dane she's like the proto christina in some ways and she's also the only one of these artists that i feel like is like openly flirting with black well no i guess in some of the motown references that we've talked about that's happening with some of the other artists but but that's different because that's like motown has fully like integrated itself into the pop imagination right. by then and it's also oldies like right totally i think debbie gibson's flirtation 
conversations with Freestyle, which right. was black and true, Latino true, 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 that true. could be considered. So this is what I heard from the story, which is that like she was kicking around. As you said, she recorded a few of these dance singles that go nowhere and that she called like Warner Chapel Music Publishing or something like that and was like, send me your rejected demos. Send me whatever like you guys have in your trash heap. Which kind of becomes a theme for her. <laughs> You are shady. My a lot God. of her hits were not supposed to be right. hers. Right. But at least this one had moxie, whereas instead of just like getting songs that Whitney passed on like later on. But whatever. So yeah, exactly. what I heard is like her dad paid six grand for her to record one of these Trash Heap songs, which is ends up being her debut single and her signature song, Tell It To My Heart. Yeah. Yes. Which is a pretty good song. Come on, Tom. You got to give it up. That song is amazing. That's my favorite song of all of these songs for me. It's got real hooks to it. It's got a really fun beat. Yeah. But it's her performance on it. I feel like I would like that song better if it was somebody else. Whitney. <laughs> no, not Whitney. It's, it's Why? like that's a Latin freestyle song. Like that's a like a higher energy club pop song. Yeah, like so emotional by Whitney. It's very much in that vibe, no? See, I think of it more like like a Lisa Lisa song. Oh, uh, okay, you know? yeah, 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 yeah. But uh -huh. but Lisa Lisa would sing it in that little like chirp, right? Where it she wouldn't overdo it, and it would just sound like cool and flirty. And Taylor Dane just goes like, "Wah." I'm with you in terms of the sort of melodrama of the Taylor Dane thing. It works on this song for me. First of all, the beat is bonkers and so intense. Like that's not something that anybody could necessarily hold their own against. Like it's a really intense beat, and sh there's something about her ripping into. To it that I find gratifying. I like it so much better when singers just kind of ride over it and it becomes like the give and the take where it's like an expose song or something. That's got a big hard beat, but they're just playfully tossing it around. And that's not within the Taylor Dane skill set. In some ways, this song feels like a precursor to 90s Diva House to me. And I was thinking like, so do you not enjoy Show Me Love by Robin S? Oh, that song rules. Yeah, but she fucking rips on that song. Yeah, but that's like some gospel disco shit. Right. I'm not saying Taylor is doing that as well as Robin S is doing it, but I'm saying like there's the same conceit going on there on some level. Yeah, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> it doesn't work for me in the same way. I do think that's a good song. Yeah. I got to say that much. And then her other big dance single from that album. It's called Prove Your Love. Yeah, that one's good too. Yeah. Oh, look, you're slowly coming around. Look, the Taylor Dane head is popping out. Taylor Dane hive. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to take a while to pop out. Yeah, and also, let's just say, that song sends her on a run of seven consecutive top 10 hits in a row between 87 and 90. She had hits on hits. It's, there's no question. She had the biggest run of hits of any of these women. Yeah, she did. She was like a constant presence in the top 10 for a long time. And like knew what she was doing in terms of being like, look at me, I can sing. Oh, another thing about her is her main producer discovered her Rick singing. Wake. This is from memory, but I believe she was singing in a Russian nightclub in Brighton Beach in Brooklyn, <laughs> which is like, she has a real Russian nightclub vibe to her. That's true. That's accurate. She's getting invited to the Russian barbecue where for they serve glimpses or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> ah, 
All right, so let's mow through these quickly because there's actually quite a bit. So you have Prove Your Love, which like kind of is like doing a similar thing to what Tell It To My Heart is doing, right? Like more or less. Yeah, you could say that Tell It To My Heart is more like fake high energy or just not fake. It's a high energy song. Yeah. And Prove Your Love is freestyle. It's the same type of deal. They're club records and they're good club records. Prove Your Love has like the get into the groove groove going on there. For sure, yeah. Then she has a ballad and I think we're going to both agree that like this is where we don't enjoy Taylor Dane songs as much. So whack. I'll always love you. What a bad song. Chintzy, dated, again, like, yeah. this is where actually the melodrama of the voice irritates me. A lot of, like, smooth jazz saxophone in her ballads. Yes. Oh, my God. Absolutely horrible. It had the longest run of any Hot 100 entry released in 1988. Yeah, because freaking radio wouldn't stop playing those whack-ass ballads. <laughs> They get on adult contemporary radio and then they never leave. And then you've got the highest charting song from this album, weirdly enough, Don't Rush Me, which is like a Papa Don't Preach cast off -y sort of song. Yeah, it's kind of a half of a rock song type of deal. Yeah. These songs do make you appreciate why Madonna was such a genius. <laughs> like, many of these songs are, like, when you hear the weird facsimile of what she was doing, like, the skill of what she had going on in terms of, I don't know, the sophistication that Madonna had is, like, lacking in so much of this. Yeah, and just understanding a melody that could just stick itself into you, the Taylor Dane songs don't have that. And an edge. Like, Papa Don't Preach is a complicated song, like, filled with tension in terms of just the story it's telling. Yeah, it's like a whole soap opera, too. You get really invested. Yeah, and like all of the drama around that Madonna was able to then play up in her imagery related to her religion and her dismissal of her religion, whatever, all that kind of conflict that Madonna so cannily crafted into her pop persona that made these songs even richer than they were on their own. Like it just speaks so much to her talent, I think, in some ways. Yes. But Taylor Dane must have seemed like the biggest fucking deal on earth after having all of these hits. I mean, I'm trying to put myself back in that 1989 or 88 perspective like she must have just seemed unstoppable uh see i'm trying to remember it at the time she was definitely like around I, I was like 10 so i wasn't like super plugged in but right like i remember seeing her name and stuff but she didn't feel like a paula abdul type like constant presence mm. but like by all intents and purposes it seems like she was right she had as many hits right but paula abdul felt like a real person in a way that taylor dane did not right part of it was paula abdul had this whole backstory the choreography and everything she's so much more singular i guess maybe is also that thing yeah there's a lot more personality in those records than there is in the taylor dane ones so taylor dane has this big first record with all these hits then she has another huge record in 1989 called can't fight fate the first single is with every beat of my heart which is i'm trying to even remember what it sounds like i did listen to it but i can't totally remember it i don't remember what it sounds like either yeah, 
But then the second single is her other quote-unquote signature song, which is, as we mentioned, I think a little bit earlier, this huge, gloopy Diane Warren ballad that was originally written for Whitney. And I'm sure you don't like this song. There's a reason why Whitney Houston didn't <laughs> record it. It is a bad song. <laughs> it's called Love Will Lead You Back, and yes, it is unfortunately a bad song. <laughs> You know what's funny is in all Taylor Dane's videos, her backup band is always like all muscly hair metal guys. Yeah. Well, it makes sense because she's kind of like hair metally with her own hair. <laughs> sure, right, yeah. It speaks to what you were saying about her like Russian mafia Long Island hybrid going on. Of course, of course. Like these are the guys who didn't make it into Bon Jovi. They're in Taylor <laughs> Dane's backing band. This is a weird comparison, but just like roll with me on it. The artist I'm about to mention, I think, has way more going for her than Taylor Dane did. But there's this way in which Pink exists as this like extremely successful pop star, but like doesn't feel part of like the highest brow mainstream conversation of like who the like she's so big and she has so many hits but yet it feels like it's so geared towards middle america in this certain way that feels out of conversation with some of her actual contemporaries in terms of her success i wonder if that's how taylor dame was operating at this particular moment i could see that but pink also has her own personality oh for sure i get it. i'm not making a total i'm just trying to get a sense of like how taylor dane was perceived in this moment where she's having so many hits but as you were sort of alluding to like doesn't feel omnipresent in the way that like paula or Janet or Madonna is. Well, and also because Pink made her whole story a part of everybody. Like that's what misunderstood was Taylor Dane never had that. She was never like, and but here's who I am though. Right. I it just I think it's more in like the latter period Pink where it's like she continues to have like huge, really successful records. Yeah, yeah. And, and you're like, like, what is this? And she's like, like doing like seven nights at an arena in Cincinnati or something. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah, and like totally. you're just like, how is this happening? I'm completely unaware of this going on. But yet she's like huge in some way. Yeah. And then she has one more hit, another Diane Warren song that was was written for Tina Turner and which she sounds exactly like Tina Turner called I'll Be Your Shelter uh, without without being Tina Turner obviously exactly she's doing Jamie Foxx and Ray there. <laughs> exactly like a total karaoke version of a Tina Turner song for sure and then she has one more top 20 hit in 93 with a cover of Barry White's Can't Get Enough of Your Love, and that's kind of it. What it's, was that? What was she thinking? I don't know. That was so strange. I was going to say that was it until she was caught performing at Mar-a-Lago in 2021 for New Year's Eve. Which, for some reason, I don't know why that bothers me more than Belinda Carlisle marrying a Reagan guy. Yeah, well, you can forgive Belinda Carlisle in the 1980s for maybe getting swept up into, like, the gussied-up version of Reaganism that was being presented at that time, where there is no excuse for anybody to be performing at Mar-a-Lago period. Especially someone who is probably sustained entirely at this point by like some errant gay fans that will like show up to her. That's show. what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. That's like who brought you to the dance, right? But like Vanilla Ice playing at Mar-a-Lago is whack and shitty, but it's not like he's betraying his fan base by doing it. 
Exactly, 100%. Like, that's whatever. His fan base is like Trump people. Okay, let me ask this. Do you have a sense of why Taylor Dane went from two humongous albums to essentially flopping like a year later? Yeah, because nobody wanted that anymore by the early 90s. That whole style was just gone. That style being what exactly? Showy, centrist pop music. Michael Bolton was done by then. (laughs) She and Michael Bolton, Michael Bolton never made dance music, but they're sort of parallel. Except Michael Bolton's legacy feels way bigger than hers. Yeah, because he's been making fun of himself. Right. Interesting. So, okay. We've gotten through our main four girls. Is there anybody else? I mean, we don't have to get in depth on them, but is there anyone you think I forgot here that fits into this category? Okay. I was trying to think about this and I can think of some peers. Yes. I think Lisa Lisa is a peer. Mm -hmm. I think Samantha Fox kind of fits into it. Oh my God. Totally would not have thought of her, but that's a good idea. (laughs) (laughs) She's in there. I think very early Kylie Minogue was very much a a peer. No, but not. I'm talking about peer in terms of this era. It was short. They kind of are forgotten. Okay. Kylie Minogue has had an epic 30-year career. Absolutely. All right. Expose. Yes, Expose. I'll take that. Um, but they're a group, not a solo act. Right. Yeah, yeah. In the moment, Sheena Easton probably could have been considered a peer, although she had already had a couple different chapters. Right. Well, that's kind of in the Belinda Carlisle mold. Yeah. So, Martika. I don't even remember that person. Toy Soldiers. Only a vague recollection of that. It's a one hit, but she was cool. She made some records with Prince after, uh-huh. and I like her. Okay. Jody Watley. Yes, Jody Watley. That was the one that I thought maybe we should have included in this one. The Jody Watley thing is interesting because her roots in soul and funk and disco are so much deeper right. than any of these women, and her audience was different. But she was also making like dance pop and making a bunch of hits at the same time and then faded away at the same time. But Jody Watley sustained herself on underground dance music, which none of these women did. Yeah. But she makes sense, though, in that, like, she had a lot of hits contained to this sort of very short moment. Yeah. There are precursors I was thinking of. I was thinking of Laura Branigan and Bonnie Tyler. Bonnie Tyler was another one I was thinking about potentially including here. Mm-hmm. And I think especially Taylor Dane was really going for that without the songs. Yes. A hundred percent. I think Taylor Dane also might have been going for a little bit of, like, a Barbra Streisand thing. <laughs> In terms of just like the vocal showiness. Sure. Okay. (laughs) And then the one who comes along after, and it's not, it's a group, it's not a single person, but Wilson Phillips. Yes, absolutely. Definitely a descendant of this movement. No question about it. And then that's the direct tie into the boomer pop stuff because they're the literal kids of famous boomer rock stars. Totally. Where they don't have to sing. I think we're alone now to get that boomer love. No, they can sing a song about taking responsibility for your alcoholism. (laughs) Exactly. Which is such a banger. Such a good song. I think that might be the best song of any of the songs that we've talked about. Yeah, you, you might be right. So let's talk about the pop pantheon here, okay? Yeah. We're going to mow through them. Do you think that they belong in different tiers, first of all, from each other? Uh, I would... I mean, it's... Okay, so when you're dealing with somebody who was in a very important group and who also did well on the solo career, do you consider the group and the solo career differently? I 
think it sort of is on a case-by-case basis, but I kind of feel like with Belinda, we would consider the group as well. What do you think? I'd say, I don't know, because especially her biggest solo hits sound so little like the Go-Go's that right. you could almost think of them as entirely separate careers, sort of. I think, here's like an interesting example. Like, I think I wouldn't separate George Michael from Wham because I feel like Wham is just like right. basically George Michael. He was doing everything. He was singing almost everything. Like, what's the difference besides the name, more or less? I mean, aesthetically, obviously, his music changed a lot. But like, I don't know. So like, that's an instance where I would include the two of them together. I think when we were ranking Justin Timberlake, we separated them out. So it's kind of hard to say. Okay, if you're going to separate Justin and NSYNC, I think you got to separate Belinda and the Go-Go's. Okay, so then let's do Belinda on her own. Where does where does she end up for you? Yeah, I really like Belinda, but I don't think she gets bumped up then. So she's five? So basically, just to refresh everybody. So basically, four, the concept of four in this context is that... Either you had one to two albums with a bunch of hits, like maybe four to five hit songs that endure. I also want to say something else. A hit doesn't necessarily just mean that like your song got to the top of the charts because so many hits are just kind of like running on the fumes of previous hits that I don't know that we can like think of them as hits. Like I still think of Tiffany as a one hit wonder, even though she had two more top 10 songs because those songs like don't live on to me. You know what I mean? Like, so whatever. Yeah. It's like the way that like Psy had another top 10 hit after after Gangnam Style, but like no one fucking's gonna remember that. I don't. I couldn't even tell you what it's called. Well, the Florida Gentleman. <laughs> I know it. That one. So the concept of four is essentially one to two meaningfully big albums and three to five enduring big hit singles that many people would recognize who are not in the artist core fan base or who didn't necessarily like grow up with them like blaring in their face somehow. Like you weren't of age to really be appreciating that right at that moment, so you remember it. Okay. So Belinda's a five. I'm afraid. I really like her. <laughs> But like, right. if you factor in the Go-Go's, she goes up to a four right. and maybe even gets in the conversation for a three. The Go-Go's are super important and very well remembered, especially to like people who are a generation up from me. Right. And there's like a good four Go-Go's hits that I think have lived on in time. Like Vacation, We Got the Beat, Our Lips Are Sealed. And I don't think the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame means anything except as an indication of certain people's esteem, of people who I think should maybe have less of a loud voice in the world. Right. But- that is an indication that they have that esteem. They have that like rockist stamp on them. Yeah, which is more than any of the other women that we spoke about today could say. For sure. And so Belinda is in the five. Because yeah. like I think really her only enduring hit that like most people know is the one song. Yeah, Heaven is a Place on it. Yeah. Which is, I'm never going to have anything that hits that way. I mean, there's plenty of amazing one hit wonders, but they're still two or five. Sorry. That's the way the Pantheon works. <laughs> All right. So next up, Debbie. I feel a great deal of affection and I almost feel like, so give me some fours. Like, All give right, me some- so Kesha would be a good example of a four. I think like Sierra probably is like a good example of a four. I think that- That's cool. Um, okay, so here, and here's some more things about fours. It's obvious that they have one or two signature songs and it's very, very clear what they are. So like Kesha, I would say like, even though she has a lot of hits, it's like, it's so obvious that TikTok is like her signature song. Whereas like when you get into these artists in these higher tiers, like it gets very confusing because they have so many huge hits. Like what's Rihanna's signature song? You know, Beyonce has like a good three, at least four contenders for like what her signature song might be. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. The music might be more recognizable than they are. 
they're usually not taken particularly seriously by mainstream audiences aside from being points of nostalgia, or they have become more critically lauded than commercially viable after a brief brush with mainstream success. That's another thing. And I don't know that she has a signature song. What songs endure? Like, do you think people who didn't grow up with her, like each of the other three artists that we've talked about have a song that I feel like is very recognizable. Even like a Gen Z TikToker would know that song. I don't feel like Debbie has that. No, I don't think she does. I love Only In My Dreams so much. Right. And I, but that's not like a song that I hear out. No, it's weird because she's had one of the most successful runs of any of these people in the moment, but it feels like the music has faded more than the others in some way. Yeah, yeah. I guess she has to go in five. Five? All right. That sucks. Oh, man. I feel terrible about it. I like her so much. I would like be open to putting her in four just because I think maybe less so than the music indoors. Like I do think the image of Debbie Gibson as a person indoors in that way. Yeah, and the fact that she did write all this stuff herself yeah. and i think that serves okay so here's an interesting thing tiffany and debbie gibson both the first people with number one hits yeah. born in the 70s yeah. so their arrival heralds a new teen pop era and a generational shift totally and I feel like Debbie Gibson should get more credit for that than Tiffany because she's got more hits. I agree. I mean, I'm thinking Debbie for Tiffany five. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Let's do it. I think Tiffany is a quintessential one hit wonder. Like if you were going to write a book about the 20, if you were writing a version of your book, that was the 20 quintessential one hit wonders. That's not a bad idea. Yeah. And that's the sequel. I think Tiffany's on that list. Like she's up there. Yeah. I I'm thinking Debbie four because it's a lot of hits. She had mm -hmm. the most hits besides Taylor, or as many as Taylor, let's say. And I do think she, even though the music doesn't endure, as we were saying, I do feel like people think of her as, as you said, like as an emblematic sort of prototypical modern teen pop star, Debbie Gibson. Yeah. All right. Tiffany, I think no argument. She's got to be, as I said, quintessential one hit wonder. Yeah. Now Taylor, like I know this is going to be painful for you because Taylor's got hits. <laughs> She does have hits. She had two multi-platinum albums. Yes. Which I don't think any of the other artists on the list do. I don't think so either. And I also think her run was weirdly maybe like the longest amount of years. Like I think she had hits from 87 through 1990, which is like more than most of these women like made it two years or so. Like all their hits are kind of compressed. Yeah, that's true. And she has at least one of those hits indoors. Like it's still a song that gets a lot of play. Really one and maybe the Diane Warren Gloopy song. Oh, I don't know about that. I think Love Will Lead You Back. Like if you look at her Spotify numbers. They probably still play that on adult contempo radio. I probably heard it in the Rite Aid sometime in the last year. I'll I'll say this to you as someone who was too young to absorb taylor like i was born in 87 so like that went right past me mm -hmm. i only knew tell it to my heart and love will lead you back prior to getting ready for this episode i had never heard any of those other songs before so okay with debbie gibson with belinda carlisle even a little bit with tiffany i can associate an image and a personality there yeah I guess I can with Taylor Dane too, because there's the bridge and tunnel. The thing. hair, yeah. the like mini dress. I don't know. I think she is. I'm biased because where this is where our we fork in the road is that like I fucking love Tell It to My Heart. Like I think Tell It to My Heart is fucking incredible. Okay. That's just a taste differential, but like that's why I think I'm feeling like deferential to her. But I could I really could see an argument for either because I really do think it's another great instance of it feels like so many of those hits were running on the fumes of Tell It to My Heart, basically. Like got, she got a lot of my 
village off of that song and i don't necessarily feel like they endure really most of them but at the same time a bunch of her hits sound so little like that song right i guess that's true i guess that's true i think maybe we have to put her in four because she's as you said she's two multi-platinum albums like that's pretty legit and like same with debbie and i feel like that's not nothing it would be unfair to call her a one-hit wonder i think in the way that it, it doesn't feel unfair to call tiffany a one-hit wonder yeah so taylor dane has one number one hit yeah which is love will lead you back <laughs> yeah and that's like her like seventh single or something right seventh top 10 hit so it was almost she pushed her way to number one just hammering away at it again and again do you think she's equivalent to kesha like does kesha a modern comp and just in terms of her success like in terms of the way that her career trajectory went kesha was her big hit came first her big hit came first and every subsequent hit was a riff on that hit yeah and honestly, I have way more time in my life for Kesha than I do for Taylor Dane. A hundred percent. Way more interesting artists. And also Kesha's story kept her as someone that people were interested in beyond just like the original run of hits. And yeah, Taylor Dane has no story. There's no, there's nothing to grab <laughs> Aside from there. somehow becoming a Trump supporter. <laughs> yeah. And like <laughs> borrowing money from her rare coin dealer father. That is Long Island. And then, and and then just taking all these songs that other people didn't want and making hiss out of I them, know. which like... I, I think Demi is an interesting comp for Taylor. Although I guess Demi has a really interesting story, but in terms of like, it's similar in that like, it's a really inelegant but large singing voice and like has no real musical identity to speak of. Oh, imagine if like Taylor Dane tried to make a rock album in 1995. Could have been good. Yeah, but what would that have been? Would she have made like a collective soul record? No, no. Well, we're about to get the Mariah grunge album, so maybe that oh, would be instructive. That's going to be so much better than whatever Taylor Dane would have made. No question. No question about that. All right. I think that I think we got it. I think it's Belinda 5, Debbie 4, Tiffany 5, Taylor reluctant 4. I hate rating Belinda below Taylor Dane. But it makes sense. Well, I think it comes with, it's like we could go back and incorporate the Go-Go's into it. But I do really feel strongly that with Belinda, it just really feels like it's about the one hit ultimately, like in retrospect. Mm -hmm. Like mad about you, just like it doesn't endure. I think people should go back and listen to some of those songs because they really do slap. Like some of the Runaway Horses songs were really good. But like, I don't feel like anybody recognizes those songs anymore. Yeah, no, you're right. Okay, I'm, I'm good with it. I don't always feel good about this either, but like, that's just reality. It's not our personal preferences. We're just trying to make an assessment of like how culture has received these people. Yeah, that's true. All right, okay. Good on you, Taylor Dane. You're in the fours. Last question for you, Tom. Is there an underrated song we haven't spoken about by any of these artists that we could send the show out on? I mean, we have spoken about it, but I feel like I need to say again that that Belinda Carlisle joint. Leave the light on. Yes. I think that should be the song. That one's so good. I also agree. That was a great song. And also that can be our reconciliation towards Belinda to like give her the song, give her, give her a shine. I like that. All right. This was very fun. I had a great time talking to you. This was super fun. I hope you'll come back and we can do like a proper episode on maybe TLC or something. I would love to. This was, I really enjoyed this. Great. Awesome. Tom, Brian, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you. All right, so there you have it. Forgotten Ladies of the 1980s. 
Belinda Carlisle in Tier 5, Debbie Gibson in Tier 4, Tiffany in Tier 5, and Taylor Dane in Tier 4. The judgment is rendered. I want to thank the brilliant Tom Bryan for being on the show and having so much fun with me recording this weird-ass episode. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Pop Pantheon wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on social media at Pop Pantheon Pod. Follow me at DJ L-O-U-I-E-X-I-V. Check out the Spotify playlist for this and every episode in the show notes of this episode and in social media. Subscribe to our Patreon, Pop Pantheon All Access, to get bonus content of the show and so much more at patreon.com slash poppantheon. And in the show notes of this episode... Check out our merch, get our dad hat in the store at poppantheonpod.com. I want to say thank you so, so much to the wonderful Russ Martin for everything he does to make this show happen every week. And also to Seth Kelly, who helped me edit this episode. Thank you to Seth. And until we meet again, you all have a wonderful life. Thank you so, so much. And goodbye. Goodbye.